2: Find out more by going to com forward slash partnerships.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Faraj Asat.
0: And me, Daniel ben Corin.
1: This week, we bring you another episode from our How I Found My Voice podcast presented by Samira Ahmed.
0: And who do we have on this week?
1: Today, we have Sir Richard Branson, the serial entrepreneur, businessman and head of Virgin.
0: That sounds really interesting, Farah. What did they talk about in the episode?
1: They talk about the moments that shaped and inspired Richard's voice growing up and how he started his businesses, from the music industry to the airline business and even space travel. And keep an ear out, especially for the story he tells about faking a UFO landing on April Fool's Day. And just before we go to this episode, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, The Out. The Out is an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, it's a great service for you to rent a car That allows you to get out of the city in style. Just download the Out app and you can have a car delivered and picked up from your doorstep. Cars like the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comp insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. So how do I sign up? Just download the Out app. And here's this week's episode.
0: So I went to the back of the airport hoped my credit card wouldn't bounce, but I hired a plane. And as a joke, I wrote Virgin Airlines one way to the British Virgin Islands, $39 and filled up my first plane. We built a UFO, as you do. And we flew over London at 4.30am on April Fool's Day. I think I've made my view fairly clear about Brexit. I think it's the worst thing that's happened to Great Britain since the Second World War. Um, I think it's the worst thing that's happened to Europe since the Second World War.
3: Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers and business leaders grow up to become such great and unique communicators? If you enjoy this episode, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Now, Sir Richard Branson was the original teen entrepreneur, a proper countercultural role model for academic dropouts everywhere. He created a business empire based on record the glamour of air travel and space rockets. He started a magazine called Student at 16. His record label, Virgin Music, famously released Mike Oldfield's mass-selling instrumental album Tubular Bells, and the Virgin Megastore was at the heart of the record-selling business for generations of young people. His successful ventures include an airline, Virgin Atlantic, banking, Virgin Money, and the privatised railways, Virgin West Coast, and Virgin Healthcare running contracts for the NHS. Now, according to the Sunday Times rich He's the 34th richest person in the UK, worth £4.05 billion. Richard, where are you speaking to us from?
0: The beautiful island of Necker Island in the British Virgin Islands.
3: And as we're speaking, I think we've got a month's rainfall falling in one day over the UK. (laughs) What's the weather like where you are?
0: Um, The nice thing about the Caribbean is it's 12 months of uh, pretty well beautiful weather every day, uh, with with, uh, every 10 years, Um, a dreadful hurricane and um, we I think we had the worst in history hit us about 18 months ago which we've nearly recovered from.
3: Well I'm about to take you back to your childhood but I also wanted to say to our listeners as Richard is speaking to us from his island there is sometimes interference with the line so apologies if the sound quality is not up to our usual standard. Uh, So Richard what sort of home were you growing up in and what was your childhood like?
0: A very lucky childhood, two delightful younger sisters, a mum and dad that loved each other. We lived in a little village in in Surrey. And I would spend most of my time out playing with friends in in the countryside and getting up to mischief. My father had just come back from the war. He became a barrister and um, somewhat struggling barrister. And he would bring his briefs back and you know, I'd look at the front of the briefs, and you would be getting you know th- three guineas or fi- five guineas a brief, um, which um, yeah wasn't a lot of money, but it managed to uh, you know keep it keep us keep us all um, all going just fine.
3: Tell me about your mother, because she sounds like she had quite a, a glamorous, racy life. She'd been what a dancer, an actress, uh, and a probation officer, and and also flown planes. Is that right?
0: Gliders. Yeah, my mum was the sort of <laughs> uh, the budding entrepreneur in the family. She would always be. You know, um, trying new things, and she'd throw herself into everything and anything, and um, and she still does. Well, into her nineties, we all ran to keep up with her. She wasn't allowed to um, to get a, a gliding pilot's license and go into the Ren so she dressed up as a as a boy in boys' clothes and cut her hair and managed to get in. So she, she's had a fun time.
3: I should say this was the, uh, the the Women's Royal Navy Service, the RENS, during World War II. Exactly, the, the yeah.
0: Women's Royal Navy Service at the time, yeah.
3: You're known as being quite adventurous. Do you think it's your mother that you get that from?
0: I suspect my adventure side comes from a mum from a very young age. You know, if I, I was once traveling to my grandmother's house and i think i was having an argument with my sisters at the back of the car and, and she just stopped the car pushed me out and told me to make my own way there you know it was about five five miles from my grandmother's through, through the countryside uh so she was a great believer in getting us to stand on our own two feet and you know she'd put us on a bicycle and tell us to ride 200 miles in pouring rain to, you know to get somewhere and you know her attitude was you know yes there's risks attached to that. But hopefully the end result would be your kids will, if they survive, will be that much more capable.
3: Your grandparents put up the money to send you to boarding school. And it is one of those things that baffles non-Brits, the sending away of very little children to boarding school. What was that experience like? I know you ended up at Stowe, but presumably that, that was a, wasn't at eight. Was that later?
0: That was later. I think it's a dreadful, a dreadful tradition. I mean, it's it's sort of a leftover from the times when Britain, you know, ruled the world and and um, our great-great-grandfathers were in India and they had to leave their families behind. I certainly didn't enjoy boarding school. Uh, for a while, I was quite good at sport and I think, you know, sport helped me in boarding school. But I was also dyslexic. And if you're dyslexic, uh, in those days, they hadn't heard, heard of the word dyslexia. And they just thought I was thick. You know, so I would really struggled to get along uh, at school. And, you know, the positive thing about that was, I decided to start getting interested in things that were not conventional schoolwork, like, you know, the Vietnamese War and the Biafran War and, you know, the provost in Holland and the, you know, students marching on the streets for, um, for different causes. And and so, you know, aged um, 14, 15, I decided to start a magazine for young people um, and uh, to, to address some of these issues. And because I was dyslexic, tried to surround myself with people who were better than me, who could compensate for my weaknesses.
3: So this magazine, did you actually start it up while you were still at school or was it after you dropped out at 16?
0: So it was almost um, ready to go while well, I was at school. I worked out of the school phone box. In those days, obviously, there weren't mobile phones. I had to put money money in the phone box uh, when I was trying to sell advertising to Coca-Cola or Pepsi or whatever to help pay for the magazine. Often there were queues of, queues of students outside the phone box banging on the on the window. So it wasn't the most conducive place to sell advertising. <laughs> But anyway, somehow we did manage to get enough advertising sold, about £4,000 worth of advertising. And coincidentally, around about that time, the headmaster called me into his office and said, Richard, you're either going to have to stay at school and get on with your homework and forget this magazine lark, or you'll have to leave school to run the magazine. And that was the best excuse I could have. I I said, thank you, but um, I'm going to leave school and start the magazine. And, you know, that weekend, went home to my parents and walked around the, <laughs> the lawn with my dad about six times. And, you know, the first time round he tried to persuade me out of it. Uh, by, the, by the sixth time around, he, d- he turned to me and said, look, you know what you want to do in life. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was in my 20s. So give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, we'll, we'll do our best to get you an education. Um, So it was a brave, a brave decision by my parents, and it worked out okay.
3: Absolutely. Well, I just want to ask one more thing about school. Am I right in thinking then, when you did decide to leave, your headmaster told you that you would either end up in prison or as a millionaire, and he was right on both counts.
0: Yes, exactly right. Yeah, I think he realised I was quite extreme in whatever in whatever I did and and maybe slightly naughty. And I did spend a night in jail and obviously Virgin went on to do great things.
3: Do you mind reminding us about, because it was just one night in jail, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Um, so what happened was the magazine was going and then we started offering young people music at a much better price than they were offered from other retailers. Um, we called it Virgin Records. And then one day I got an an order for some music from Belgium and got in the van, drove the records across to France, and they, they asked if we had a carne, and we didn't know what a carne was. and But basically, it was a, a piece of paper to prove that we'd exported them. We didn't have one, so they sent us back to the UK. By the way, this is the sort of problems you're going to have when, we, when we're no longer out of Europe, where you have to you know, you, you have to pay taxes every time you go across a border. You have to fill in long forms. Anyway, so we came back to London and, and, and I thought, um, hang on a minute, everybody will think we've exported these. We can sell them in our store and not pay the tax. Anyway, it was a foolish thing to do. Um, it taught me in life that it's not worth taking on authority in, in, in that kind of way. In order to pay the fine, we had to expand our Virgin Record shops as fast as we could and get the turnover going. You know, that gave us stimulation to build to build Virgin.
3: Fascinating. I think it's hard for people to grasp how much money your company was turning around how early on. So within a year of launching Student Magazine, I gather your net worth was fifty thousand pounds. You've now got the, the mail order record business going, Virgin Records. What year is this? I mean, what kind of money are you turning over by this point?
0: We may have been turning over quite a lot of money. We certainly weren't making a lot of money. So, you know, in order to get the mail order company going, I would stand outside the Albert Hall or the Queen Elizabeth Hall, handing out leaflets to people as they left, listing all the records that we could sell them. You know, because we didn't have any cash, they would then send us the, the money then we would go and buy them from our record shops and at a discount, and then we would send the music to them. For some time, the record companies wouldn't wouldn't supply us direct, and it was only when, you know, we did have a lot of people ordering a lot of records that the, the record industry finally dealt dealt with us in it directly. Big turnover, very little profit in those days. It really wasn't until a young guy, aged fifteen brought a tape in that our sort of fortunes began to change. And and by then I was, I can't remember, 18, 19 years old, maybe. You know, we loved this tape, but we didn't have a record company. So we took the tape to eight other record companies. They all rejected it. And so we thought, let's start our own record company. And we started it literally around this album called la Bells, and it was by Mike Oldfield. You know, John Peel loved it as well. I took him, brought him to my houseboat, played in the whole the whole record. He then played the whole record on the BBC, which was unheard of, 48 minutes of music. There was no vocals on it, but it, it exploded. And for three or four years, It and Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd were either number one or number two, usurping each other.
3: Part of what's fascinating is we now look back from where we are in the music business, with you know almost entirely digital, at this remarkable couple of decades. And Virgin Records and you are there at the beginning and you're riding that wave when people were buying physical records, they were buying them in record shops. I just wonder what made you go into the music business?
0: It was literally just a a love of that particular album that got, got us into it. I have a cousin for, in South Africa called Simon Draper who knocked on my door one day and he became head of the record company. He had the biggest record collection of anybody I knew. Together, but, but but using his musical taste, we ended up signing Genesis and Phil Collins and Lenny Kravitz and, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Rolling Stones and, anyway, a whole, a whole raft, of, raft of bands and became, you know, the biggest independent record company in the world. And it was tremendously exciting. People like Phil Collins or Peter Gabriel or Genesis could see what we'd done with the Sex Pistols, they wanted to sign with us and and many, many other people signed over the years.
3: With all this going on in your record label, as you say, the most successful independent record label in the world at the time, you were a millionaire by the time you were 23. The rock and roll industry has a reputation of being pretty wild. Were they wild times for you?
0: They were, um, except that uh, because I knew that I had to get up at whatever it was, seven every morning, and had a lot of... um, a lot of people working for us. I um, curtailed the excesses that I think everybody else around me were doing. And I suspect that's quite lucky because I'm quite an addictive personality. And um, yeah, so everybody was having a blast. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.
3: Interested in how you came to set your sights on air travel and wanting to set up set up an airline.
0: I was in my late twenties, courting um, a lovely lady who's now my wife, and I'd uh, been away from the Virgin Islands for about three weeks. And on the way back to the Virgin Islands, I was on an American Airlines plane in Puerto Rico when. Uh, the captain announced that uh, he'd been told that we can't, he couldn't fly to the Virgin Islands tonight, but he would fly in the morning when he could get a full load of passengers. And I was damned if I wasn't going to get home that night. It was the last flight out. So I went to the back of the airport. Um, I hoped my credit card wouldn't bounce, but I hired a plane and borrowed a blackboard. And as a joke, I wrote Virgin Airlines one way to the British Virgin Islands, $39, and went around all the passengers who'd been bumped and filled up my first plane. And then the next day, I I rang up Boeing and said, my name's Richard Branson, I have a company called Virgin Records, we have the Rolling Stones, could I possibly buy a secondhand 747 from you? There was a bit of a laughter at the other end of the phone, but um, but in the end, he said, look, I'll come and see you. We'll certainly talk about it. But only if you promise that um, you won't call the airline Virgin. He said, if, if you call it Virgin, nobody will expect to go the whole way. So anyway, he turned up, we managed to get our first secondhand 747. And we disobeyed him. As people know, we called, we called the airline Virgin.
3: Where did the whole thing about your brand being called Virgin come from in the first place?
0: I was with a group of young 15, 16 year old girls. And one of them laughed and said, you're virgin at business. Uh, we're all virgins. Why don't you call it virgin? And I was certainly a virgin at business. So it seemed seemed like a fun thing to do. And then I had real problems trying to um, get it registered. The, the registry office thought it was rude. And for three or four years, we, we couldn't actually register it, although we just carried on in the end, I wrote them a letter, having looked at the dictionary and said, look, virgin means pure, untouched, unblemished. Perhaps you could reconsider. And and they reconsidered.
3: Well, it's interesting the way that that word has... That risque association, even as you say, you successfully argued on some of the dictionary definitions. And the first commercial flight that Virgin Airways had, um, it's been documented by, I think, a former travel editor of uh, one of the, the, the Fleet Street papers about this wild party. And he says, let me tell you, it was a Bacchanalian orgy. I mean, it was wild. There was drinking, there were topless models on the plane. It was having a party and Richard led from the front. Do you remember that first flight?
0: <laughs> I remember it well. Um I can't remember topless models, but anyway, I can remember everything else. You know, what we wanted to do was to differentiate ourselves from the stuffy British Airways. I mean, the only reason I decided to start an airline was because our rivals, British Airways and Pan Am and TWA, you know, they would dump a lump of chicken on your lap. No seatback videos, no films. The staff were fairly obviously didn't enjoy their jobs. Uh, in those days, so we thought we could do it different, differently, and we thought we could make it a fun airline. Everything about Virgin was different, and it had to be different because you know if you look at the history of the airline industry, it's littered with failures. I mean, like we were competing with twenty airlines with one with one plane. Most of those other airlines had three hundred planes. Pretty well every single one, bar one, have gone bust. So Pan Am, TWA, Air Florida, People Express, British Caledonian disappeared. You know, they they, they they just hadn't got the product right so that the public really wanted to travel on them. And it was quite easy for the likes of British Airways to push push them over the cliff. When British Airways tried to push us over the cliff and launched the Dirty Tricks campaign against us, the, the public st- stuck with us. Uh, we took British Airways to court Things worked out okay, but it did it did result in me having to sell the record company to make sure that we could combat them and um, That was a sad day, but we, we, we then had the financial strength to uh, make sure the record company was secure, the airline was secure, and we, we had the resources to take version forward into new foundations, etc.
3: It's quite a roller coaster that time, and I remember it. For those who don't, remind us, what were the dirty tricks that BA launched against you?
0: You know, when I tell you, it almost sounds too unbelievable to be true, but they had a, a team behind locked doors, which no, nobody was allowed to enter, and they were going into our computer information, and they were then getting the, na- the names of our passengers. This team of people are ringing our passengers, pretending to be from Virgin, saying that Virgin had a delayed flight and then switched them on to British Airways. You know, that was one thing they were doing. They had a team of people at the airports who were trying to intercept our passengers as they were going to the check-in desks. They had people that went through my rubbish bins in my home, uh, rubbish bins of journalists who were also investigating BA at the time, rubbish bins of a nightclub that we owned to see if they could, you know, find some needles or something to prove that you know somebody had taken drugs in the nightclub, which is quite likely they would have done but and you know then they would <laughs> you know try to place the stories with the newspapers and so on and and then at the same time they were they were trying to discredit us financially with with banks and other things so it was a systematic attack. British Airways had successfully done that with Freddie Laker and 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 they'd um, had to pay out quite a lot of money when he disappeared. you know it was the way they behaved. Once we won the court case, Lord King had to resign, who, who ran British Airways. And since then, you know, we, we have competed fairly. You know, they haven't resorted to these sort of dirty tricks. You know, we think that they have a <laughs> a monopoly at Heathrow of the slots. And that's the that's battle we'll fight with the government. But I don't have to worry about people going through my rubbish bins anymore.
3: It's fascinating hearing you recount all this. And thinking back as well, how... Virgin impacted on the travel market, you know, this younger, more fun uh, way of flying. Your whole voice, your presence in that was always one of being both innovative and disruptive, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Were you conscious of that, of wanting to be a troublemaker in this staid airline business?
0: Yeah, I think there's no point in starting a company unless you're going to create something that, you know, you can be proud of, that your staff can be proud of. The customers love, and we all love an individual with a sense of humour. You know, if a company can have a sense of humour too, I think that's good. For instance, April Fool's Day is my favourite day of the year. One one year in the early in the early days, we built a UFO as you do, uh, and we flew over London at 4:30 a.m. on April Fool's Day, and um, went. You know, coming down the motorway, every single car stopped. Everybody was standing outside the car. The whole motorway's come to a standstill. Um, The police were called out. um, uh, Three different police forces, the army, were called out. We we landed in a field just outside Gatwick. They surrounded the field, and then they sent a bobby with a truncheon towards the UFO. As the bobby came close to the UFO, the uh, door opened just like an E.T., yeah, we were pumping dry, dry ice uh, out through the door, and we had a, a midget of um, about three foot tall two foot five um, in an e t outfit and he he walked down <laughs> walked down the steps and the policeman turned and ran but anyway, the reason I tell that story is it, I think that it's it 's doing fun things that make people smile that that i think endear endear you to watch you know to to the brand they can they 're also fun for for myself and our friends to do anyway.
3: Well, what's interesting hearing that story is it's partly of its time, because now, what with security scares, I think you'd got into a lot more trouble. But also, for my say, the image of kind of reckless, sexy glamour, which was very much cultivated, very much fun in the 1980s, the racy red, the turning women upside down. There's a lot of photographs of you doing that. Some people were uncomfortable about it then. And I think it's fair to say now... Even more so. Are you, do you have any discomfort at all about how far you might have taken it?
0: (laughs) I don't think anybody was uncomfortable with it then. Um, I mean, Kate Moss, you know, it it was our first model that we signed to our model agency. And, you know, I turned her her upside down on the wings of the plane. You know, she smiled, the press smiled, the newspapers lapped it up. Freddie Laker once said to me, you know, when when we were just starting the airline, Richard, British Airways have got hundreds of millions they can throw at you in advertising. You've just got to get on the front pages of the papers if you're going to survive. And we took his advice and we, we threw ourselves into it. And I, I completely agree. We wouldn't. It's, it's something that you don't do today, but in in, in those days they loved it. And the, the press loved it, and, and 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 it made people smile.
3: Was there ever a business attempt or? Uh, thing that you went into that wasn't fun and you thought, I wish I hadn't tried this?
0: <laughs> uh, they weren't necessarily all successful, but they were all a lot of fun. I mean, we took on Coca-Cola, which is a formidable giant, even bigger than British Airways. Uh, we had a year and a half of tremendous success. I mean, people lapped it up, literally. Uh, we were out selling Coke and Pepsi in the UK and in one or two other countries. But we then made the mistake of turning our part. Literally on America, and I arrived in Times Square with a Sherman, British Sherman tank, uh, crushing you know piles of Coca-Cola and Pepsi cans, and cola was squirting everywhere. And you know we then turned the turned the tank's turret onto the Coca-Cola sign, and which we'd pyroteched the night before. Coke were not amused. And uh, the next day, literally, they they got a DC-10 in Atlanta at their head office, uh, filled it with squat teams and money. And these squat teams and the money arrived and suddenly Tesco's became very wealthy as they were taking Virgin Cola off the shelves, as did most other retailers in, in Britain. And, you know, within, within six weeks, we'd been kneecapped very successfully. And we did not know... At that time, what was going on? It was about three years later that um, my new bank manager at Lloyd's uh, took me out for dinner and said that she was the lady at Coke that had overseen um, this kneecapping. But um, she was delightful. So she's still my bank manager.
3: But you're laughing about it now. But it's real David and Goliath moment, a bit like with the airline when you had BA's dirty tricks and you had real financial risk involved in trying to save your airline. Was it ever frightening?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, there's a very thin dividing line between success and failure if you're an entrepreneur. And I think in those days, there was even, an even thinner dividing line because, you know, the word entrepreneur hardly existed. I mean, when I was young, you know, British airways, British coal, British steel, British gas, everything was run by government badly. And uh, British trains, and, uh, British rail, sorry. Yeah. So there weren't people you could go to borrow money um, from, you know, when we started the airline, we, we had this wonderful inaugural flight. I came back to my house to find the bank manager sitting on my doorstep, literally sitting on my doorstep. And he came inside and he said, um, You've gone 100,000 over your limit in, in starting the airline, and we're going to foreclose on you on the Monday. And this was the Friday evening. I just um, said, Look, I'm really sorry. You're not welcome in my house. And I gave him a gentle push outside the house and then thought, I've just pushed the person out, out of my house who's about to take the house on the Monday and everything else we had. And anyway, we then scurried over the weekend, managed to get the overdraft below. This was and Company was the bank. And we had a three million overdraft facility. We, we then took our profit figures, et cetera, to Lloyd's. And by the end of the week, they'd, they'd um, given us a 30 million overdraft facility, you know, with the, the, exactly the same figures that Coots had. So yeah, it can be it can be perilous building companies.
3: I'm quite interested in some of the things that didn't quite um, work out, particularly Virgin Beauty, which was your venture into the cosmetics business. And what I remember reading at the time was people saying, you always hired the best from the competition when you were starting out. What did you learn from experiences like that?
0: I mean, fortunately, we haven't had many failures. We've had Virgin Brides, we've had Virgin Cola. We've had Virgin V, which the be- was the beauty side,
3: yes, I just remembered Virgin V. you had a shop on Oxford Street, and I should say I was a huge fan of of the products there.
0: I think with most companies that fail, you know we have not differentiated ourselves dramatically with the competition, so you know we, we're just about to launch a uh, Virgin voyages or a cruise company. Does the world want a, a new cruise company? I would never want to go on a cruise, so we decided let's let's try to create the kind of cruise company that myself and my friends would love to go on. And, you know, so we got a massive big blank, blank piece, sheet of paper. We've created, I think, the cruise line that is going to be fun, which, which everyone would, would love to go on and would want to come back for more. Um, and we've got four or five new, new ships coming. Actually, I'm going to go on the 1st in November just to check it out. With the cruise line, it's going to be the best. I mean, absolutely the best. You know, like no buffets, it's going to have... 28 of the best restaurants on board, you know, the best music, the best the best everything. With the few companies that have failed at Virgin, uh, we might have been the best in, in a sense, but we weren't, you know, like with a cola, uh, you can't be dramatically better than, than um, Coke or Pepsi. And, you know, so when they try to put you out of business, it's quite easy for them to do so. With an airline, because we were so much better than British Airways and because people loved and still love to travel on Virgin Atlantic or... Virgin Australia or, or the other airlines we set up around the world, they, they've survived and thrived.
3: Can I ask about the space travel? Because you have stayed committed to it with Virgin Galactic, and I know people who bought tickets very early on. Has it been frustrating watching the likes of Elon Musk kind of suddenly come in there and launch his his different bids? And where is Virgin Galactic now?
0: So, on the positive side, in response to the Elon Musk comment, um, Virgin uh, Galactic is the only company in America to have put people into space since two thousand and nine, and we put five people into space so we've we've had a fantastic year, and Elon and Jeff uh, Bezos have not yet built a craft to put put people up. I mean they will, but they haven't yet. so we're very proud that the, the team have you know have succeeded at doing that. It's been, I think, for all of us. Jeff uh, started, I think, a year or two before us. For for all of us, it's been about fourteen years of hard work, and rocket science is difficult. And we we've we've found that, as has Jeff, and as as has Elon. You know, But now we have a wonderfully safe rocket that's been tested and tested and tested that can be switched off at a second's notice. We've got a, a mothership, which is which we've built. Uh, we've got a number of spaceships that we've either built or are building. We've got a beautiful spaceport in New Mexico. And uh, early-ish next year, we'll start taking people up into space. I'll go up and you know, it'll be the start of quite an exciting new era. And we've also been building... Something called Virgin Orbit, where, where we're going to be launching rockets from underneath a Virgin Atlantic 747, helping connect the 4 billion people who, who haven't got internet access through putting satellites into the sky. And that company will, will, will be launching its first rocket into orbit in roughly eight weeks, 12 weeks time. And so exciting days, I think, for Virgin Galactic and for Virgin Orbit.
3: One thing here at home um, in Britain, which I think has been more controversial, is um, Virgin's involvement in NHS healthcare contracts and to some extent in privatised railways, although less so. And I know that last year there was a campaign complaining that when Virgin Healthcare didn't win one contract, they sued um, clinical commissioning groups in Surrey. And I just wonder what you'd say to your critics, because that issue around healthcare in particular it's one that really does arouse people's kind of political divisions, doesn't it?
0: So starting with Virgin Rail, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, anyone who's mm-hmm. old enough to remember will know that British Rail was abysmally run and the government decided um, to allow a, a number of private companies to come in and see if they could Im- improve it. And at that time, there were 8 million people on the West Coast mainline uh, as of this year um, we, we've actually built that number up to 40 million. You know, should we have should we have gone into healthcare? I, um, <laughs> I sometimes wonder. Um, Gordon Brown asked me to come to Downing Street one day. Uh, he was the Le- the Labour Prime Minister at the time, and he said that he would love to bring some of the sort of Virgin experience to the to the NHS. You know, would we consider doing it? And we thought we'd give it a go. And and I think that the team at Virgin at Virgin Care have done a tremendous job. Any profits that we make um, will be rein, reinvested in the NHS. So we'll never take any money out. And we've invested something like forty million pounds, I think, into the NHS, which is um, monies they wouldn't have had otherwise. But more importantly, a lot of, a lot of expertise. You know, having said all that, I understand people's worries about private companies being involved in the NHS and...
3: And suing, and suing when you don't win a contract. Even,
0: even, even if I think that it's a, it's a good thing. As far as suing is concerned, um, you know, I didn't know the company had done it. Looking into why they did it, I, I think they had every justification for it. And and the fact the fact that the commissioner... Paid the damage. I think we'll, we'll stack up the fact that that we had the justification for doing it. It obviously didn't look good, and I, you know, would we have done it? Would we have done it again? I don't know. But the the important thing is that money is not coming to Richard Branson. It's 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 staying within the NHS. And and, and as I've said, if we do make money out of it, hundred percent will go back into the NHS.
3: It's clear that you you are thinking about your legacy of how you want you and your your brand um, to be thought of. And I was thinking as well about the, the Elders, which is this board of kind of elder statesmen and women and activists um, that you kind of came up with the idea for with Peter Gabriel. I think Jimmy Carter is one of them to kind of intervene in major international issues. Where did that idea come from?
0: Well, Peter and I both came from slightly different different approaches as to how we ended up with the Elders. So we had persuaded Saddam Hussein to release some hostages from Iraq, in in return for some medical supplies, and and we flew a uh, uh, seven four seven into Baghdad Airport, met, met Saddam Hussein at the at the airport, handed over the medical supplies, and took the hostages back to England. I then thought, having you know got to know Saddam Hussein in a tiny way, and and knowing. King Hussein of Jordan, who knew him very well, that may, maybe, maybe that we could stop the war that was looking like it was going to be inevitable with America and Britain invading the country. And, and I just thought if we could persuade Saddam Hussein to step down and go and live in Libya for the rest of his life, that the war could possibly be averted. So King Hussein of Jordan contacted Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein said that he'd be willing to consider it if we could bring some elders, elderly statesmen over to talk to him and possibly fly out with him. So talked to uh, Nelson Mandela, who agreed to go if I could get Kofi Annan to go with him, who was Secretary General of the United Nations at the time. And Kofi Annan agreed to go as well. We had a plane standing by in Joburg, and then the bombing started. And, and so the meeting never took place. But what it got me thinking was, if there were a group of elders who were highly respected in the world, that they could perhaps go into conflict regions and um, and because these leaders in in different parts of the world would look up to these elders that they could maybe knock heads together and and bring peace so so Nelson Mandela agreed to be the founding elder uh, Grasha Michelle is the, was the founding mother of the elders and you know Kofi Annan signed up President Carter Mary Robinson Ban Ki-moon is an uh, elder, anyway, an extraordinary group of people um, of, of roughly six, six women and six men. And, you know, they had an early success. I mean, Kenya was falling into the most ghastly civil war after an election that the opposition thought had been rigged. People were being burnt alive in churches and in their homes and so on. And Kofi Annan, you know, flew down there. He, uh, Archbishop Tutu, um, who was one of the elders, came up from South Africa and, and one or two other people and they they took the leader of the opposition and the leader of the country to a game reserve for two or three weeks. They knocked heads together, a coalition government got formed, uh, the conflict dropped away. They've obviously had other other situations where they haven't succeeded. I mean, they, they, they worked very hard on Syria, couldn't get the support of America and, and, and others that they needed. But, but they are working on different situations around the world. Um, sadly, Kofi and Anne, who was the last chair of the Elders, is no longer. Um, but we have got Mary Robinson now, who who chairs the Elders, and she's a formidable force. and um, And they don't just deal with conflict. In the Paris Climate Talks, we were there with the Elders. We were there with another organisation that we set up, the B Team, uh, which is a group of uh, very well respected business leaders and. You know, we were systematically going around, you know, the Indian Minister of the Environment, the Chinese Minister of the Environment, explaining why they needed to support the Paris Agreement. And and at the end of it, you know, it was was a tremendous outcome, even if um, what's going on in America is not helping at the moment.
3: It's clear that you are thinking a great deal about what's going on in the wider world. And some of the people listening might find it at odds with the image they've had of you as that kind of jolly businessman who kind of does a lot of stunts. You mentioned earlier some quite strong comments about the impact of Brexit, for example, on shifting goods across borders. What are your thoughts about where we are and the Prime Minister's handling of it? I'm conscious we're speaking at the very start of October by the time this airs. Who knows what state we're in? But you clearly have a view about
0: Brexit. I think I've made my view fairly clear about Brexit. I think it's the Worst thing that's happened to Great Britain since the Second World War. Um, I think it's the worst thing that's happened to Europe since the Second World War. The U- European Union was set up at the end of the Second World War by people like Churchill and others to make sure that um, we would never go, go to war with each other again in Europe. Since then, it's been a bastion of of, of peace, um, a bastion of democracy. You know, it's extraordinarily sad that kids have... People who live in Britain will no longer be able to work in Europe. Will no longer be able to live in Europe. Um, it's incredibly sad that businesses um, and and therefore the people who work in those businesses have have been so badly damaged since the referendum, and and will will be damaged even more um, uh, in in the years to come. Um, you know, I could just give you examples of our own businesses. I mean, Virgin Atlantic that we've spoken about. It, it has cost. Tens of millions of, of pounds since the Brexit referendum, by the collapse of the pound from one fifty two to what you know one twenty two. All our costs are in dollars: um, fuel, maintenance, lease costs, and that's been a big financial blow to the company. And then, on top of that, if we go for a hard Brexit, we send about a hundred million pounds worth of goods to around the world, but we we, we get that hundred million pounds from Europe. That will stop i mean that that'll just go on european airlines and not on british airlines so you know the, the you know the list is is gigantic of all the negatives and one just wonders why we're ploughing on and on towards the edge of the cliff
3: finally what do you want your legacy to be
0: your legacy is basically how you brought up your children you know how you and your wife brought up your kids they they're the people that, that live on after you and they're the people who you know continue hopefully the good work of, work of um, their father or mother. You know, i like to think that in, in various things that we've done and are doing, that we've made a bit of a difference and, and hopefully improved other people's lives. You know, apart from the elders and the B team, we're working a lot on the oceans, you know, trying to get to 30% of the oceans protected by 2030. We've worked a lot on drug reform and um, trying to, you know, have governments treat drugs as a health problem, not a criminal problem. Anyway, being an optimist and having got parents who both lived well into their 90s, I'm ho- hoping for the next 25 years to still be working on them. So legacy is something i have not gone <laughs> to think about for the time being.
3: <laughs> Sir Richard Branson, thank you so much. Thanks so much. You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer is Farah Jasset. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this episode by rating it and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts.
1: Hello again, it's Farah Jasat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout-out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium, hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dark charge included.
2: Download the Out app today. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts, the ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared.